Hello and welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. My name is James Fuller. I'm delighted to say that we've got two guests with us today on the on the uh, on the pod. Two well-known states members. Uh, Steve Fuller has been in the news recently because he's suggested that the state should do something really radical on the housing market uh, and look at using derelict greenhouse sites. So we'll be asking him about that. Uh, and we're also joined by Lindsay De Sommere, who's in the news because she's always in the news as president of uh, Environment and Infrastructure. Basically, there's not many things that tend to uh, tend to pass her by. And so uh, we hear from her quite, quite a lot. So uh, welcome both. Thanks for having us. Uh, and I'm also um, uh, pleased to be joined by my colleague Matt Fallais, who will uh, offer some uh, th- further thoughts from the from the pod benches. Um, so anyway, I mentioned greenhouses, uh, so we'll start with that subject. Uh, Steve, first of all, greenhouse or glasshouse? Oh, well, that's a good Guernsey question for you. Uh, I tend to say greenhouse, I must admit. It's got to be, hasn't it? I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's where we come from from Guernsey. Although I think, but- in a way, I've got a greenhouse in my back garden. But I wouldn't say I've got a glass house in my back garden, uh, whereas I might look at a larger span of glass and call it a glass house. So anyway, talking about glass houses and greenhouses, what do you want to do with them? What's what's the basis of your uh, of your uh, intention? OK, well, for a start, it wasn't really my idea to uh, use the word radical. It was, it was the word used by the president of PNR. Uh, in his double-page uh, spread in the Guernsey Press recently, sort of, a, if you like, um, talking about how he thinks he's doing, um, and then in his uh, in his uh, PNR update in the Assembly the other day. So I kind of jumped on that because ever since I've been in the States, and indeed before, it's bugged me that there are so many really, frankly, very unsightly glasshouse sites around the island. Uh, I know that isn't a problem for everyone, but it just kind of bugs me. And I, and I think given currently... We have a shortage of open space and we have a shortage of space to build houses. It seems to me if we are going to do something radical, there might just be a solution there. And initially, all I really want to achieve is to get it on the agenda of something that none of us had heard about before. But it's a task force that is uh, being put together, pulled together by Deputy Furbrush and PNR. Uh, to look at housing and take a radical approach. And this, okay, this might be radical, but it's also incredibly populist, isn't it? I mean, everybody at some point has said, let's build on this greenhouse site, and then until somebody else puts out, it's a bad idea. I mean, you know, it's it's been a, a, a the, the story's been around for as long as you were a reporter before uh, you, you you entered the next stage of your life. Yes, it's not a new idea, but it does just tend to slip into the background every so often uh, and get forgotten about completely. And I think uh, the other thing is I genuinely think we get used to seeing all these scruffy old broken down and actually sometimes dangerous glass houses. So we hardly notice them anymore. Lindsay, I guess you've been involved in, in this from a land planning perspective at some point. I'm very aware that previously, you know, it's derelict greenhouses are everybody's priority until they look at other priorities and then they realise it's not a priority. Is that uh, is that fair? Um, I do look at it from a spatial land use perspective, but also housing is in ENI's mandate. And, and thank you for your kind introduction. I think also I know what we're likely to cover in this podcast. I should probably also mention that I sit on ESS along with Steve as well. Um, so it's not the only hat I wear. But um, between ESS and ENI, that is both the affordable housing and the general housing uh, mandates covered. And in fact, that was why um, Deputy Roffey uh, persuaded me to join ESS in the first place so that we could have that more joint up approach in terms of housing and um, 
it's it's slightly frustrating at the moment because I would like to go into an awful lot more detail than I'll be able to, but we're about to publish um, uh, a report which will feed into the GWP reset. I don't know if this is too much jargon. That's the government work plan uh, reset, which is basically the sort of blueprint for government work, you know, the priorities. Um, so we're going to be publishing something next month, which will actually um, take as its basis uh, a really, really useful report that's been done. And I know Steve's seen that as well. Um, and uh, make a, a set of recommendations about how we tackle these problems. The report does two things. It, it explains and evidences the problems and I can tell you they are legion <laughs> and it also recommends um, solutions. So one of the things it does actually warn against is picking out individual uh, sort of niche areas and just focusing on those. They, you know, the reports do stress that it's very much about the interdependencies. And, and generally speaking, one of the most fundamental problems, and I know Steve will agree with this, is that there is simply um, a mismatch of supply and demand, very more specifically, um, very much less supply than we need to fit the demand, both in terms of the number of units of accommodation and indeed the size and type as well. So that's the single biggest problem uh, to address and it can be done in a number of ways. But Lindsay, just look at it this way. If the, um, you, the we have a shortage of, of sites for housing, we, we know that, that demand outstrips supply. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to, well, I'm going well, to break well, that well, down there is, a there is bit. a need to, to build more than a thousand new yes, homes over true. the next year. Yes. The state's recently approved that. Yes. Um, and there are some derelict glass house or mm -hmm. greenhouse sites. And in some cases, that they are in quite built-up areas for, for historic reasons. And there is no reasonable prospect of them being returned to horticultural use mm -hmm. or being used for agriculture if the structures that are there are knocked down. Yeah. Now, Logically, a lot of people just don't understand why, given those are the, the conditions the states are battling against, why shouldn't there be specific a specific zoning, as it were, carved out so that homes can be built on glasshouse sites? Why, why is that such a, a radical or um, unacceptable proposition. We've already got exactly the zoning you're talking about. So you're quite right. And this comes back to the land use thing. And I'm aware that I'm an uber geek and I get very excited about <laughs> spatial land use planning. And I think I leave swathes of people behind when I do. Uh, so I'll try and make it um, uh, less geeky and much more accessible. But basically, the, the spatial land use plan, which has got the rather unattractive label of the slop, uh, is is the fundamental way in which we organise development in the island. And its founding principle is that we concentrate development, which includes residential development, in the main centres, which is town and the bridge, and then some local centres as well, which typically, but not it doesn't directly align with parish centres usually. Um, and so residential uh, development, which you're quite right, Matt, is very urgently and pressingly needed. That's what I've been hopping up and down about, um, uh, you know, especially with the, the, state's how to, the state's strategic housing indicator policy letter, which we debated in the previous um, state's meeting. Um, uh, that is where residential development should be concentrated. Now, the reason we want to concentrate um residential and other types of development in the main centres and to a slightly 
on a slightly smaller spectrum in the local centres is primarily actually because of economic viability. So that's what makes centres economically viable and vibrant and good places to live. Now, I think an example that probably could use to demonstrate what happens when you don't do that, which a lot of people, even though we don't live in the UK, would would relate to and understand, is the out-of-town shopping centres. So many people will be aware of the way in which out-of-town shopping centres in the UK have sucked the lifeblood out of high streets in in towns uh, and other urban areas. Um, and that's because it's absolutely fantastic that you can get all those things in one place. You can go and do your weekly shop and get your hair done and um, have a coffee with your friends and all the rest of it. But because that is out of town, it's not where people live. Uh, and actually, they're typically quite poorly served by public transport. Uh, it sort of, you know, requires a car to get to and from that, you know, area, that shopping, out of town shopping centre easily. Um, so it's it's fantastic that you've got all those services, those things that you want to do and buy right there. But the problem is that those are not embedded in the place where people are living and working as well. And so the the whole principle underpinning the slab is that you do, you have that wonderful, uh, you know, it's basically just convenience. It's basically saying, look, in the places where we want to encourage residential development so that you can live, you can also access a better quality of life because you've got a shop across the road, bakery over there, hairdresser down there, uh, you know, you're on these bus routes. It's very, very difficult to organise public transport if you've got dispersed residential patterns. In other words, housing everywhere. Um, you know, I think of my parents who live sort of relatively out in the sticks. There's no way that we'd get a bus down their lane or anywhere near it, really. And it wouldn't make sense because there are only three other houses in, in the whole area. Um, but when you have, um, when you have centres where you know that's where the majority of people live um, and and work, then it's much easier to organise um, transport and, and good transport networks. So outside the main centre, Steve, you're not going to get Lindsay's support no. or some I'm other... I'm very supportive inside. OK, but outside yeah. centres, there are quite a lot of, of derelict greenhouse sites and, and clearly you're, the report of Lindsay's committee is not going to back that. So the real question, I think, for, for us is, what are you going to do to try to progress your idea, which clearly has quite a lot of public support, to uh, liberalise the regime around house building on, on those sites? Yes, yeah, so first of all, it, it does have quite a bit of public support, but there are also some people who don't support it. I, I would say, I mean, I've been contacted by, by both. Mm. Um, uh, and it, the, the supporters do, do by far outweigh uh, the others of those who've taken the trouble to get in touch. Um, what can I do about it? Well, in this respect, I'm really a backbencher because I'm on economic development and I'm on ESS, so I don't really have any levers personally, um, other than to be able to lobby, cajole, persuade uh, my colleagues who are in, are in the right seats uh, to try and do something about it. So that's why I was encouraged to hear Deputy Furbrush say that he was going to, in a sense, I think, show leadership and pull a team together to look at this. Now, I'm also aware that, that crosses over into E&I's mandate. Um, and so, uh, therefore, there, there could be some issues there. You were arranging uh, to meet him, I think, when, when we last yes. spoke to you about this last week. Mm. Have you had that meeting? I, I had half an hour with Deputy Furbush earlier this week, uh, where we, I mean, it's a very informal conversation, but where he explained to me a little more 
uh, about what he has in mind uh, with this task force. I really think that's probably for him to tell you. Um, but, uh, you know, there was nothing that particularly surprised me. Um, but I just think it's good that, that, that somebody is wanting to take another look at this. We know where all the derelict glass is. The you know, DPA have got a map. Mm. Um, and, and what I like about it, actually, is it's not all in the north. <laughs> so it's it's scattered across the island and I think you know understandably we get accused of putting all the new big uh, social housing sites at this end of the island where we are sitting now in Bray Road um, and of course there are massive infrastructure headaches for Lindsay and her committee off the back of that um, but quite apart from the fact that actually we say we've got no green space you know I live in the middle of the island and I can access you know pretty much everywhere from where I live on dog walks etc I see lots of open green space in Guernsey I also see though wasted space um, and you know I think that um, it, I absolutely recognize it's not a simple thing to resolve so what can I do I can just continue lobbying but I think you know one of the things um, that Deputy Fabrish and I talked about is does the planning law need to change in in this respect? I mean, and you know, and if so, what kind of changes would that would that require? Yeah, Lindsay, your response to Steve, although <laughs> very logical, yeah, uh, and you talk about strategic planning policy, are you not guilty of? Not starting from the from where we really are, which is the scourge of yeah. Urban so we've development. already got well ribbon development and urban sprawl. So what this is, well, we can't I mean, do that, can we? We have no, we, we have can't, to live with we, the consequences. We do have a choice to not make it worse, and we do need significantly more housing. And if I mean, Steve used a very accurate phrase, which are that the the greenhouses are scattered around the island now. He talked about the infrastructure costs, those infrastructure costs which directly affect the cost of housing and the cost of living um, are much greater in an urban sprawl situation than they are when you when you uh, you know concentrate development where it should be for all those other reasons in the centres that are already zoned for residential development. Um, so yeah, I mean it just it, and the infrastructure we can tackle the infrastructure problems when the and in fact that's exactly what we're doing because the housing allocation zones are already in the same broad area. We are able to tackle that on an area basis because the whole point about transport infrastructure is it doesn't work if it's just a little bit here and a little bit there. You have to take a network approach to these things. So you can actually make very significant improvements by looking at it on an area basis. When you've got residential development spread like butter over toast, your infrastructure costs are infinitely higher and infinitely more challenging. And many of these greenhouses are actually down lanes that I think we find very, very uh, difficult to make work from a transport infrastructure point of view, from an energy and other utility infrastructure point of view. It would carry on fueling the cost of housing. And affordability is another one of the really, really central problems that we've got in our housing market at the moment and we need to be really seriously concentrating on making housing more affordable and we should not be choosing the most expensive form of development which is urban sprawl we should be doing exactly the opposite because it brings economic benefits energy benefits climate change benefits it helps protect our our um, green spaces and actually Steve always ribs me for using the word contiguous <laughs> but it does matter it's not just about the individual pockets of, of green space it matters about having you know larger contiguous areas of green the space the ph field for example <laughs> exactly. is part of a contiguous, contiguous run of green block yep. yeah we both strongly agree on that okay uh, <laughs> Steve you say you've met uh, Deputy Fairbrush do you feel 
Any more heartened after that meeting? Any more positive? I feel that he's committed to taking this further, so so that's encouraging to me. Okay. Uh, I don't think he wasn't just doing it for a soundbite, put okay. it that way. Uh, and are you concerned about the potential of the dereliction lottery here? You know, that uh, well, your, your derelict greenhouse site becomes a yeah. housing site and yours do, doesn't. Do you know what? I, I'm going to hesitate before I say this, but I'm going to say it. I don't think we should be running politics or decision-making based on envy. And, and I think there is a, a bit of that about the Gunsyman. You know, he doesn't want to see the guy down the road who he's at school with make a few quid because he happens to have some old glass which he could then potentially build on. I don't really think that, you know, in times like these, if, we, if, 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 I, if it was a business in a crisis, you know, I used, to be in, I used to run a business and I've worked with many, many businesses and I've helped them with their own crisis management communications because they've got a situation to deal with. In a situation like that, a business does what is necessary to overcome the problems and challenges it faces. Government seems incapable of doing that. We always have to follow such set parameters and guidelines. And I'm still a fairly new politician. But sometimes, you know, if, if somebody else tells me we can or can't do something because it's either in or out of policy, it just drives me nuts. Okay, can I just, I need to just cycle back if that's okay, because Matt reinforced, <laughs> reinforced uh, something which I think is a little bit of a misconception. Um, and that is about the availability of sites, because you're quite right that if we total up the housing that we need from here till 2040, as, as according to our strategic housing indicator numbers, um, we, we will need to allocate more um, parts of the island, you know, for housing, basically. So that's that's something that the DPA is currently looking at. However, the shortage of sites is absolutely, it's not even close to the, the most pressing problem we've got at the moment. So we've got a whole range of issues, but we know that we've got a whole bunch of sites which even have planning permission. They've even got that far. And I think the last time the DPA checked, it was at 568 units of housing that had planning permission and had not come forward. So clearly... The, the availability of sites, which is really what we're talking about with the whole, you know, considering uh, the use of redundant greenhouses, um, is not the most urgent and pressing issue. It, you know, we've got far more uh, obvious and, and pressing issues in terms of the constraints on our construction uh, sector at the moment and the costs of development and because things of immigration like that. policy. Um, well, yes, but the policy is really interesting. So I voted against the strategic um, uh, policy objective, um, which is basically to grow our population. Um, but I think that does throw up a really interesting conundrum because basically I, I was in the minority. So we've now got a strategic population objective, which directs the states to plan around a growing population. However, it was absolutely silent on the mechanisms that it would use to actually bring those people in. And we are in very ferocious competition with all, you know, neighbouring, in fact, you know, Europe-wide probably, uh, for exactly the same group of people to, to come in and, you know, help, uh, you know, su support our workforce. So we've got to plan around a growing population without any mechanisms to actually make that a reality. So... We're in a really interesting conundrum, I think. And, you know, one of the reasons I voted against it was apart from the fact that I think our focus should be far more on productivity rather than just, you know, take all your baseline assumptions of productivity and just fuel more people in at the bottom of the pyramid kind of thing, um, was, was because I knew that it would put um, a significant strain on, on our infrastructure and that if we're not really serious about tackling the infrastructure uh, 
side of things, then we're going to end up in much more of a pickle. Will the E&I housing delivery plan tackle those sites with permission that have not been taken up? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. So uh, I don't know what Deputy Furbrush has got in his task force, but it sounds like everything we've got in our plan. (laughs) Maybe you should talk to each other. Well, exactly. But but, but he knows that we're doing this because he was one of the people that decided to commission uh, the report along with me and Deputy Ruffy. So he knew that we were doing this um, and uh, we're just doing everything as as planned and as directed. And we're bringing things forward um, in time for all of that to feed into the GWP. Thanks for all that. I mean, housing, this is a massive issue. Uh, we haven't got three days to do it on like stage members. So <laughs> and we'll, we'll call it a halt there and actually move on to our next uh, issue, which is coming up at the next states meeting, which is the interim uprating of pensions and benefits. Now, you're both members of uh, Employment and Social Security. Uh, this has become a contentious issue uh, and Matt is all over it and he can give us a brief overview before we ask you uh, why you're doing what you're doing. So in simple terms, employment and social security uh, is unconventionally but not uniquely proposing a mid-year increase in pensions and other benefits to reflect the the, uh, high inflation environment that we're in. Normally they are increased uh, on the 1st of January um, every year and this year, as last year actually, employment and social security is saying there needs to be a mid-year increase. It's become contentious because policy and resources in the wake of the defeat of their plans to raise additional tax are saying it's not affordable, we're not opposed to the concept of of pension and benefit increases, but you need to wait till the 1st of January. Now, given the defeat of their tax proposals, and they said quite openly during that debate, if these proposals are lost, there will be less money available for states' committees, and uh, the committees will have to tighten their belts. Uh, it's not unreasonable, is it, that PNR should be opposed to these proposals? Well, I think the difficulty there is that if you take that standpoint, you could well end up uh, in uh, getting involved in other costs further down the line because of, because of not de- tackling it now, dealing with it now. It's a one-off um, in as much as till the next time. But, you know, it's not, it's not planned to be a regular occurrence. We live in almost unprecedented times for the, over the last few decades of uh, hardship for people. And the people that ESS, by and large, are dealing with are people who are facing severe hardship. Uh, nobody wants to be on benefits. Nobody wants to live on benefits. There are people who are desperate to look after themselves. And as we know, there are people that are very, very reticent to come forward for help. But right now, people need help. I know this because my sister runs the food bank um, and Guernsey Welfare has never been busier. Um, Those kinds of situations on a relatively wealthy island like Guernsey, where, let's face it, we've all noticed our shopping baskets increasing in price um, significantly in the last year. And but some, some of us can manage that just simply by living slightly more simply or, you know, deciding what luxuries to cut down on. Um, but there are people who just don't have that choice. And I think we need to be responsible as a government and look after them. You're both politically vulnerable on this, though, aren't you? Because you know next week when your committee lays these proposals before the states that PNR and other members of the states who, who supported their GST mm. proposals are going to say, uh, we told you this would happen and the, we told you there would have to be reductions in spending or there wouldn't, couldn't be increases if you voted against our plans. And the first thing you do is come back proposing uh, inflationary increases that, that in total are, are going to come to 
uh, two and a half million just pounds. Just shy of three and a half, yeah. Uh, uh, um, so, so what, how are you going to respond to that in the states next well, week? Well, I just, I just don't accept that premise. Actually, uh, if I don't know how closely everyone followed it, but I think most people listening would be aware that there was more than one option on the table. In fact, there ended up being five, yeah, five different options on the table. Now we debated them um, once. Once they were all in we debated them all together and the sequence of voting was that pnr's preferred package which was the one that included gst was the first to be voted on so once that was defeated fairly comprehensively uh, fairly convincingly it was clear that you know that was no longer an option and it was then a choice between one of the other packages or nothing, or the situation that we're in right now. Now, actually, there was a slash and burn option, as I, I fondly called it, not very fondly called it, which was option C, I think, which was basically just massively reduce expenditure, basically um, take a torch to public services. And that was very, very convincingly defeated. So that clearly was not the political will. Um, the one, the alternative option that clearly had the best chance of winning was um, option D, which was the one led by Deputy Soulsby, uh, sort of coined the fairer alternative. Um, now, I voted for that. So I voted for a package of measures which was responsible. It did have uh, additional revenue. And actually, when that one fell, there was a sort of safety net package, which, which was option E, uh, actually brought forward by Deputy Roffey. And I voted for that one too. So I voted for two packages packages which would have averted this situation but the states voted against all the packages this, so there is now this projected deficit but it's but it's it's not and, true and the to state say didn't approve a package yes but matt so it's, so, so it's, why does your committee not respond to that by okay. saying we can't come with these proposals for additional expenditure i'll get to that in a minute but it's just not fair to characterize it as because people didn't support pnr's package we're in this situation it is fair to characterize it as because and actually the the fair alternative lost on a draw you know if one abstention on the other side one member of pnr had said i'm just not voting on it it would have gone through and we would have not been in this situation um however uh so i just don't think it is fair to characterize it as because we didn't support PNR's package. I think it is fair to characterize it as because a majority could not get behind just by a whisker, couldn't get behind a single package we are in this situation. I tried my best. I did vote for more than one one month package, which would have averted that. But to answer the the sort of core of your question, Matt, the situation is is real life, you know, because this is not a theoretical numbers game here. This is real people's lives, real households, real families, real individuals that are very much having to deal with the day-to-day -day reality of the hardship presented to them by very unusually high inflation levels. And the fact that our, you know, the benefits that in, in some cases they are um, even wholly reliant on have not kept track. So in real terms, that means that they have not got sufficient funds to to access the goods and services they so desperately need. And, and it's a it's a real problem. And we know that, you know, Islanders have already been in this situation for many months where there's a gap between the inflation levels, i.e. the costs of goods and services in the island and uh, and the rate of benefits that they are able to access. And that is real hardship and it's accumulating all the time. That's why you're right. It is unusual that we bring this, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. You both used quite emotive language in your in, in your responses. Um, <clears throat> do you think 
do you think the states debate will will follow? You know, will it be a big deal states debate? I mean, it's not not particularly big states meeting, so you will be able to focus on this. Do you think it actually will be quite an argument and, and quite a tight decision? If I had to put money on it, I'd say it probably will. But the states is unpredictable, so you can never tell. Um, if I think if it was at the end of a, a, a three day long agenda, exhausting agenda, then probably it wouldn't. Uh, but you're right, there is time, so. Uh, it probably will, and I and I do think you, you know as, as you've rightly identified, it will be informed by the position that we're in as a result of not finding a solution uh, to the uh, the overall deficit. But you know that that we still have choices. It's not like we haven't got any money. We have got money, and it's also worth saying as well that um, actually uh, many of the benefits we're talking about are actually funded through contributions as well, so not out of general revenue. Okay, uh, so let's let's move on to another issue that's uh, evolved out of the uh, out of the tax review situation, which is the uh, new capital project um, uh, review, which is now looking at uh, pipelining or sidelining a dozen projects uh, and still trying to go ahead with with quite a few, with the idea of kind of shaving off two hundred million pounds or so from the state's capital budget. Um, Lindsay, you've already spoken on this uh, in today's paper. Uh, how do you feel? Or were you surprised what what you saw from PNR? I was very surprised to see um, the uh, transforming education program prioritised over the health program. Very surprised indeed, um, and I'm not sure that that is a that is the the best uh, decision given where both programmes are. But I suppose justifiable on two counts. I mean, Deputy Furbrush has said uh, today that, you know, we have a hospital that's functioning at the moment. Uh, <laughs> we don't necessarily have a, uh, a optimal secondary and post-16 <laughs> education system. Uh, also, on another, from another perspective, frankly, from this government's uh, perspective, they want to get this education matter, however it is, done and dusted by 2025 don't well, they? Well however it is is you know it's, it's not going to be an optimal result I don't I haven't yet found anyone who thinks that because of course this plan has already derailed you know we know it's hit the buffers in terms of its uh, development and um, because of the issues around the contractor um, we know that they've had to reach for an interim uh, arrangement which involves basically this this rather extraordinary swap arrangement with um, the sick form going down to Lamar and Lamar coming up to to Le Varond. I, I haven't met anyone who thinks that's in any way a sensible idea. Uh, I think those interim arrangements are, um, you know, I think there's a much, much better solution um, uh, that would avoid that situation, probably be much more cost effective, certainly be much more educationally effective. Um, and so I think that, you know, that that is an a project that is absolutely right to to reevaluate in light of where we are. You used that phrase earlier, James. You said, or someone I think accused me of not starting from where we are at the moment. I think we do need to start from where we are at the moment and, and seriously reassess um, the direction that we're taking. And I, I'm just worried that you know there is a, a great deal of sort of ideology and sort of political motivation driving this rather than the practical outcomes that we really should be focused on. This is a wide ranging debate, but it's been framed as the two big projects, education versus health, schools versus the hospital. Uh, Steve, where do you stand on it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty aligned with Lindsay's view to be honest, I, d I do think the whole thing, uh, sadly, um, involves a lot of waste because so much effort and cost has been put into those projects already, um, which, you know, if, if, if they can't continue, who knows how long 
things might be parked for, uh, the so-called pipeline, could be a very, very long time. Um, and then by that time, there'll be no corporate memory even of the projects because uh, people have retired, moved on, etc., uh, who were heavily involved possibly not get re-elected. Steve, um, do, you, do you accept <laughs> that it is either or between the PH modernisation phase two and the education project at Les Osway? Not necessarily. I think possibly both of them could be trimmed. Um, again, in, in the business world, you take a haircut uh, when you need to. And it's not the ideal, but, you know, after a while, then the, the trimmed down version of whatever it is you're going to do becomes the norm and, and it's acceptable. And and I think, do you think it's either or? Oh, I, I don't know. I think, you know, we need, we've need we only seen a very, very high level assessment, haven't we? So we haven't had a chance to sort of get into the, the, the numbers and things like that. But I would say that I find it extraordinary that we, we seem to be deprioritising health at exactly the time that we are cripplingly conscious of the health the importance of a healthy population when we've got an aging demographic and all the sort of wider economic issues. And actually the phase two of the hospital modernisation programme is exactly the phase that delivers so many efficiencies and so many wider benefits and, you know, really sort of comes into its own in terms of economic benefit as well. Um, so I find it uh, very disappointing that that has been shelved. And as I say, I'm confident having spoken with, you know, quite quite a, a, a few people who know their onions on the topic, that there are better alternatives in terms of the, um, the, the education uh, system as well. How do you both feel when you see a capital programme for a, a five-year state's term, which is now you know, two years through, with £580 million worth of spending in it? It just seems insane that, that is, you know, that's never going to get spent, is it? It's almost like a wish list to re rebuild your whole house. You know, what you might like to do it, but realistically, you're never going to do it. Is, is that the way that, you know, do you perceive the, the capital programme as being unattainable in the first place? It, it's very ambitious, that's for sure. Uh, and yeah, I guess, um, to be honest, I've never really thought about it in those terms. But now that you've prompted me, it, it does feel unachievable, um, particularly in these times when we don't really know what's around the corner. So um, I think, yeah, I think it was, I think the government work plan, while it did bring some focus, it's still pretty clunky. Um, I'd, first of all, I'm not sure how accurate that figure ever really was. But the other thing that I, I would like to stress is that certainly when it comes to bits of critical national infrastructure, I think we haven't invested enough. And I think we are unwise to look at it as you know simply a case of oh um that costs a lot therefore let's not do it i think you really need to assess things in terms of their strategic need and infrastructure projects often are you know by their very nature very long-term uh, um, projects that are very expensive but are essential by their nature and actually deliver um if you do them right, you know, prevent costs from arising over the longer term. And I think actually that's one of the things that concerns me about the the proposed haircut, as Steve might put it, is that I worry that I think it's very easy for politicians who work typically to a sort of four or five year cycle to get too focused on the short-term issues and not keep enough of an eye on the on the long-term uh, issues. And the long-term issues are, are the seriously important ones. And I do worry that we might be a little bit blinded by the short-termism and the need to sort of save money. Um, and I think some of these projects um, 
you know, I, I can understand why many of them are in the sort of, you know, have been moved to the pipeline. But I do worry that actually by doing so, we might be a little bit giddy on the thought of not spending that money now. But actually, we incur costs by not doing that work and we end up, you know, putting more pressure on the taxpayer over a longer period of time. Yeah, you've already said that uh, in, in the newspaper today. I mean, the... Um PNR are now doing a tour of the committee presidents to, to try and sell the ideas. So some of the cuts that they've made do impact you at ENI. In brief, you know, give us a sneak preview of what you might be telling them. Well, actually, we're meeting with them tomorrow. Um, but we were... I. I, I don't know if all committees have done this, but we were um, very um, uh, proactive, I think, and we actually put forward some suggestions to PNR of things that we thought would be reasonable to to look at again, rescope, uh, possibly delay, etc. So, yeah, there there are some projects that you know have found themselves in a in a different bracket at our own suggestion. So, you know, we we do want to be corporate players. We do understand the bigger picture. We have been very kind of cooperative, I suppose on that front and I look forward to working cooperative I know there's a lot of um, a lot of mythology about tribalism and all the rest of it but but genuinely I, I, I do hope that we will be able to work uh, collegiately there will be a few big ticket items I'm sure which will you know people will disagree on but I would like to think that actually most of it can be sorted out ahead of a policy letter being produced um, so that most people are on board. Maybe maybe I'm being naive and optimistic, but I'd like to think that is possible. 20 years ago, the big problem the states faced with capital projects was overspends. So there were a lot of projects being done, but they were often millions of pounds over budget. Mm-hmm. The problem, the big problem now is getting projects off the ground, isn't yeah. it? it? The states seem to have fallen into a rut, not just in this term, but in successive terms, where they can't plan, agree, execute and finalise capital projects in a way that looks even semi-coherent. I mean, Steve, you've you've served for two and a bit years yeah. in the States, so you're new to it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Come from a business background. I mean, first of all, do you think that's a fair assessment? And secondly, why do you think that is? Um, I do think it's a fair assessment. And the, the Harbour Development is just a very good example of prevarication, delay, um, you know, basically avoiding the crunch of having to make a decision. Um, and here we are, you know, we still don't even know who the directors are on this board that is going to oversee all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's a fair point. And it, and it, it is frustrating uh, for a, a relatively new politician to be party to that. Um, but we, you're right. I mean, the, the, the proverbial can that is mentioned at every states meeting is, um, you know, is kicked. I... I think there are two distinct issues within the situation that you described. And I think your, your analysis was, was accurate, your description was accurate. But I think there are two things, there are two parts. One is the strategic decision in the first place. And Steve was quite right to point to the non-decision really over the future harbour requirements as a classic example of a decision that wasn't made. And I have to say, especially from an ENI perspective, where so many of our infrastructure projects rely on knowing what that decision is so we then can't progress for example you know flood defenses in the bridge area or, or, or whatever because we don't know what the future harbour requirements are so that has been a real issue that lack of or the inability or seeming inability to make these big strategic decisions when we need to make them 
I think that's one part of it. But I think another part of it is actually, I think it's a direct response to to the issue, the scenario 20 years ago or whatever, um, where the problem was overspends. And I think um, the second part of the problem is our procurement processes, which have I think the pendulum has swung so far the other way now that we now have very, very heavy-handed procurement processes in order to protect us from the kind of situation that we might have seen two or three decades ago. But I think the result is, and I've I've been one of several presidents to have a real pop about this um, uh, recently within um, our regular meetings with PNR, is I think we now have a real sledgehammer and nut situation that even relatively minor projects, which are complete no-brainers, require hugely complex business cases to to get them moving. And so I am reassured, actually, I don't know if there's been any sort of formal decision or or announcement or anything like that, but I was certainly very uh, reassured by the mood music coming from PNR and those sort of central function officers um, to say that they acknowledged that was an issue and it was something they were looking to tackle. So I'm hoping those procurement processes will be more proportionate going forward okay thank you i mean i think we should say we did invite uh, pnr to join us on this uh, program today they uh, declined uh, this opportunity however we are doing a separate recording with deputy Ferbrush, so we'll ask him some of those questions i just want to move on to our final topic for um uh, for today uh, the big news until the last week or so within uh, the past few weeks has been the purchase by the states uh, or by the uh, through emergency powers of, of a new uh, ship for Condor. Now, um, Lindsay, you were in the meeting, so I guess you will be restricted from from what you can say. But Steve, as a, as a backbench deputy in this regard, uh, how much more do you want to know about what went on? Well, first of all, I, I got a bit confused because I remember at the, near the beginning of the term, um, Deputy Fairbrush announced that we were going to buy a boat. And then it went all very, very quiet. And then suddenly we have to have an emergency quick fire decision to buy a boat. And then and no one knows about it until afterwards. So, um, obviously, I'd like, I mean, I can only assume there must be very, very, very good reasons why others could not have been kept in the loop on such a big decision. Um, and, you know, one could, I'm not going to speculate what they might be, because it, it, it would definitely be wrong to do. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it, it's a surprise. And, and particularly at a time, well, there's so many things about it, that there's so many questions arising from it, from, from the way in which it's been done, and from the fact that we're unilaterally doing it without any seeming involvement from Jersey. Uh, so, Lindsay, uh, I have to ask you to uh, to comment. Right. Well, my position is um, is very difficult in commenting because if if I divulge anything, I shouldn't. Um, I'm not sure if people are aware quite how. Uh, serious the cca law is but i face i think it is a two-year prison sentence or something so it's a very very serious law but actually that's kind of part of the picture the reason there is such um rigorous legislation around the the need for secrecy is because the cca's mandate is only engaged when there are issues of serious risk to various aspects of of island life, well-being, uh, critical national infrastructure, etc. Um, so the CCA cannot just be called upon to come and buy buy a ferry or something because uh, you know PNR or economic development or whatever quite fancy buying a ferry. Um, the CCA's mandate can only be engaged. We can only act under the powers vested in us by that law if uh, there are 
very watertight reasons um, to demonstrate that that action is needed. And it's very, very frustrating sitting here because it's actually, if you think about it politically, very selfishly, it's in our best interest to be able to divulge um, everything about it because it's so frustrating having to sit here being completely shtum um, watching everyone speculate in all sorts of weird and wonderful directions when you know what the actual um, you know reasons are uh, and you're not allowed to say but it's partly because um, there there are obviously some bits of information are highly sensitive and there are obviously some scenarios in which the sharing of that information itself presents a risk. But Lindsay, the the CCA, you've described accurately the the confidentiality rules which sit around the CCA and and clearly they can't be breached because because the, the penalty is up to a term of imprisonment. But the members of the CCA are able to waive the confidentiality arrangements yeah. I, I think unanimously, but nevertheless, they, the members of the CCA do have those powers. Now, w- was that considered by the members of the CCA? Because yeah. individually, you've all said, we wish we could explain yeah. more about what we've done. But if you waive the confidentiality provisions, you could. So was that considered? Yeah, absolutely. And what I will say is, um, you'll remember, because was it over the Easter weekend? I, see, I do remember it was over some sort of weekend. <laughs> there was an awful lot, uh, both you know, at the original meetings um, and subsequently a huge amount of discussion and thought and very, very careful thought about quite how much information we could put into the public domain. So we have waived confidentiality. I mean, I think the confident I think it's the confidentiality clause is, is so strict that actually I I think you're not even supposed to mention that there has been a meeting unless um unless that's also um sort of approved i suppose for uh, for public release because you don't want to scare horses you know you don't want to create more of a problem or or, or sort of catalyze a problem that otherwise wouldn't have been there um so yeah we have released as much information as we possibly could keeping it within the bounds within which we fear or beyond which we fear problems would be catalyzed or exacerbated what is perhaps not widely understood here is that the role of the CCA is to consider whatever the emergency is and to issue instructions to other committees who then put into effect whatever action is deemed necessary. Now, those other committees typically are not bound by the same confidentiality as the CCA. So in this case, PNR has set up all of the financial arrangements the reasons why they're necessary are bound by confidentiality. Yep, correct, yep. But the financial arrangements themselves are not bound by confidentiality. And yet, to some extent, a cloak of confidentiality has been thrown over them, as well as the CCA consideration of all of this, hasn't it? So what what do you think might be done to try to encourage PNR to be a bit more transparent, even though legally the CCA can't be? Yeah, my understanding is exactly the same, is exactly as you've described it. So um, we are very much bound by the confidentiality clauses. You're quite right that the act of buying a ferry and the reasons for needing to buy the ferry are two separate issues. And the CCA was very much considering that second one, the need for it. Um, uh, I think really, I can't speak on PNR's behalf, but my understanding is that your assessment is accurate. Questions in the States, Steve, next week on this? Um, they've already been all 14, haven't they? I believe, um, or maybe I just heard that and they haven't come to light yet. Um, 
I, I hadn't planned to ask any questions myself. I, I'd be surprised if somebody didn't, though. Well, yeah, we're we're now beyond the deadline, so um, so unless someone's already submitted questions, um, I don't think they would qualify as Rule Twelve. Do you think the full picture will come out in due course, rather like COVID? You know, so information, you know, emergency powers are used, and then information comes out further down the line. I think some more information will come out in due course, um, but I I don't know if the whole picture will be able to come out in full in well. in. The, I apologise to our <laughs> listeners for that, but hopefully we'll we'll get, uh, cast more more light in that area. Um, at that point, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap things up, folks. Thank you very much for your time, Deputy Steve Fallon, Deputy Lindsay De Summary. Um, we will see you again for next week uh, when the states are meeting for the shorthand states every evening. Okay, thanks for now. Bye now. Thanks. Thank you.